1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, and also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end, when he delivers up the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. And when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, that God may be all in all. Be seated. Last week we began to take a look at this passage in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 23 through 28, and made the comment that is one of the great passages in all of the Word of God that teaches what I refer to as the post-millennial perspective. In a very succinct way, what do we mean when we say post-millennialism? In a nutshell, it recognizes that the Scripture teaches, as we've already seen thus far, that the resurrection of the dead, of all of the dead, occur at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Then comes the end. I hope you notice in the second hymn that we sang, one of the stanzas understood this passage, talked about Christ as the first fruits, and then those who are raised from the dead at his coming. hope you saw that. Uh, in that stanza, written by that author in 1862. They understood those things, what the Scripture teaches. There is a general resurrection of the dead. We looked at some of the passages regarding that last week, but there is one passage uh, that I want us to turn to very briefly that teaches that uh, the, the resurrection of the dead occur all at once, not separated by any lengthy time, not separated by a thousand years. We looked at that passage in John 5 that clearly taught a spiritual resurrection and a physical resurrection. But that general resurrection of the body, Jesus said, encompassed both the righteous and the wicked. If you take a look at me with me at Daniel chapter 12, look at verse 2. We'll see what the prophet Daniel said in this regard. He said, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. The testimony of Scripture is that the physical bodily resurrection encompasses everybody that has ever lived. And so there is a, if we may say, a dual aspect of the resurrection. You have the righteous and the unrighteous. But they all will be raised from the dead when at the second coming of Jesus Christ. And the scripture says, as verse 23 says, 
Verse 24 says, then comes the end. And we mentioned, obviously, last week, one of the comments was that Jesus says the resurrection of the dead occurs at the last day. The last day is the last day. There are not any going to be any more days, like a thousand three hundred and sixty days after that, then that completely destroys the meaning of the term last day. So, just that fact alone means that there cannot be a millennial kingdom after the second coming. Just that point alone proves that in itself. That means that the millennial kingdom has to be before the second coming, not after. And you can't have, and we, we did note this, uh, one of the things, because people impose a system upon the scriptures, if you have a time period after the second coming, but you have some people being raised from the dead, like Christians during the church age, then you have a tremendous problem with immortal people living with mortal people. And nowhere, I'm saying nowhere in the Word of God, can you find one passage that even remotely alludes to that. It's all because one's theological system is imposed. If we just let the Scriptures speak, we see the resurrection of all the dead occurs, as the Scripture here says, at uh, his coming, which is the last day. So we looked at the fact that there are, in the scriptures, there are two resurrections. There are not two bodily resurrections, but there are two resurrections. Revelation referred to a first resurrection. We looked at that the week, uh, last week or the week before. That, in that regard, with a first resurrection, the second death has no power over them. And we saw in Revelation that the second death is referred to in Revelation as those whose names were not found in the Lamb's Book of Life, and they have been cast into the lake of fire that was prepared for the devil and his angels. So the first resurrection, just like Jesus talks about, is a spiritual resurrection from the dead. We looked at three passages, if you recall, from Colossians 2, Colossians 3, and Ephesians 2, we looked at how the scripture says we have been raised out of our deadness to our trespasses and sins and raised up with him in the heavenly places. And as uh, Colossians says, and as Ephesians says, seated with him in the heavenly places. Now, now that's been true of Christians ever since uh, the apostolic days. How can I be, and it says it's, it has happened, how is it that I can be raised up from the dead and seated with Jesus? And the scripture tells us where he's seated. The Bible tells us he's seated in, in, the, in the heavenly uh, places. He's at the right hand of God the Father. It's what Christians have confessed in the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed for centuries after centuries. There is a view, and I've mentioned to you premillennialism. I've mentioned to you postmillennialism. There is another view known as all-millennialism. That uh, prefixed all normally means no millennium. 
But it's really a, a bad term for that view because they do believe, all millennialists do believe in a millennium, but the reason it's all, they don't believe in a millennium like the pre-mills or the post-mills believe it. There's a lot of commonality between all-millennialism and post-millennialism. And they agree on many things except one fundamental fact that separates it. And it's what distinguishes post-millennialism, what I would refer to as the eschatology of Scripture, from all the others. All-millennialism, like all the other views, has a defeatist view of history. They do not believe that the gospel will have a pervasive impact upon the nations of the earth. Only the post-millennial view that we believe that what the scripture is setting forth here in this, just this one text, because we are in 1 Corinthians 15, that only that view maintains a consistent view of victory of the progress of the gospel in human history prior to the coming of Christ. Again, the all-millennialist believes that the millennium is before Christ's coming, but they don't believe that the gospel will have that pervasive of an impact. We beg to differ with those brothers on that point, and we believe that this scripture that we're looking at today, verses 23-28, definitively teaches victory for uh, the church in Human history before the coming of Christ. Now this passage that we're looking at does confirm that there is nothing after the second coming because, again, what did uh, the verse say at the end of verse 23 and 24? At his coming, then comes the end. At the second coming, the text says that Christ hands over the kingdom to his heavenly Father. And I want you to notice the, the, the phrases. Look at the first phrase. When he delivers up the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. Notice the completed action. Has abolished. He didn't say will abolish. Has abolished. If I say to you, I'm going to, on Monday, I am going to the store to get some things. You say, oh, uh, next month you're going to the store. No, I said, uh, after when Tuesday arrives, on Monday, I went to the store. Oh, you're going on next month. No, I told you, I went to the store on Monday. Jesus says, what the scripture says here, He delivers up the kingdom to the Father when He has, past tense, abolished, what? All rule. Authority and power. Then it says, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So what we see here, the end doesn't come, right? What the text is telling us, the end doesn't come until 
all authority has been abolished. And then he takes that abolished rule and then hands over to the Father a victorious kingdom. That's what our text teaches, quite clearly. Now this illusion here, when it says he has abolished all authority, uh, abolished all his enemies, when it says for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, it's obviously an allusion to that great passage that we have looked at before in Psalm 110. In Psalm 110, that text says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. It's the text that Peter quoted on the day of Pentecost. He referred specifically to Psalm 110. He says, this Jesus whom you crucified is the one that David prophesied that would rise from the dead. And this man whom you crucified, mind you, has been risen and is seated at the Father's right hand. And what you have witnessed today at Pentecost, he says, is the example of the fact that Jesus is seated at the Father's right hand and has already begun his reign. And that's why, uh, and that's what accounts for the successful conversion of 3,000 people on the day of Pentecost. But G- the text says here in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus is not coming back until, I'm going to emphasize that, until his enemies are subdued. And what is the last enemy that's subdued, does it say here in the text? Well, it says in verse 26, the last enemy that will be abolished is death. Let me ask you this. Would you not agree that the resurrection of the dead of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ is a destruction of death? Is that not a destruction of death? To be raised from the dead? That death no longer has any power over you? Now, I know I'm jumping ahead in the chapter, but it's relevant that I do so. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. Just look at 1 Corinthians 15. We'll get to it more in a a later message. But look at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 through 56. To prove the point that death is abolished at the resurrection of Jesus. Now, I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot be inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death has been swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. 
But thanks be to God who gives all us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Death is swallowed up in victory when we put off mortality and put on immortality. Death is swallowed up in victory at the resurrection, at the second coming. Now, the resurrection, we've already saw, is that which occurs at the second coming according to 1 Corinthians 15, 23. But I, I want you to see the similarity of this passage here in verses 50 through 56 with a passage that we looked at last week, but from another vantage point. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and look at verse 15 through 17. 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning at verse 15 through 17. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So, the, what we've established so, so, so far from several passages, the resurrection of the dead, of all the dead, occur at the second coming. Then comes the end. But the end doesn't come. The end doesn't come as verses 24 through 28 tells us, until something happens. Until all of Jesus' enemies are subdued. And the, the, the last great one is death. But it will be subdued, right, when the dead in Christ are raised. But that's at his second coming. It does all make sense. It's not complicated if we just let the scripture guide us. So, the scripture affirms, we have seen elsewhere in scripture that Jesus is presently seen, uh, being, uh, is presently seated at the right hand of the Father. We saw that uh, because of Acts chapter 2 that I've alluded to already. Who quoted Psalm 110. There's no question about it. The ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. The session of Christ, the word session, means being seated. By the way, when we talk about the session of the church, is the elders, it's the seating of the elders that govern the church. That's why it's referred to historically as the session, the, the body of elders. Jesus is seated at the Father's right hand. And when he was raised and when he was seated, it began the court. That was the coronation of King Jesus. Now, because of royalty, many of us, uh, I don't ever remember the coronation of Queen Elizabeth. It's been so long ago. I was just a kid. 
But in, in, in those, when you did have her coronation, but you have a king, even before her, when you have a king, the imagery is you have this throne, and at the coronation, the king comes, and he sits on the throne, and he has a scepter, which is the symbol of his power, right? The fact that he's sitting on the throne is an image that the king is now governing his domain. That's what the sitting of a king is on his throne. The ultimate king of kings is already seated on the throne of God right now. And he is not coming back until all his enemies are subdued. That's what our text says. He's not coming back until his enemies are defeated. Now, there is another great passage that demonstrates this point, along with 1 Corinthians 15. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10 and look at verses 11 through 13. Hebrews 10, verses 11 through 13. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins, but he, referring to Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, ready for this, waiting. Waiting for what? Waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. You see how consistent the scripture is? Whether it's Acts 2 or 1 Corinthians 15 or Hebrews 10. It all is referring to the fact that Jesus, when he was raised from the dead, he went to the Father and sat down at the Father's right hand, and he's waiting. Now, it's obvious it is not a passive waiting, to say the least. Because who's defeating all his enemies but Jesus? And we're going to see next week, he will defeat his enemies primarily through his church. But he he will not come back. It says he's waiting until the last enemy is destroyed which is death, which will happen at his second coming. Now, the resur- uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 27 in our text, if you go back and look at that, states that he, now it's referring to the Father at this point, that he has put all things under his, meaning Jesus' feet. That's what it says. And the only one that Jesus is not subjecting to himself is the Father. Because it says, all things will be, verse 28, all things are subjected to him, will be subjected, uh, except the one who put all things in subjection to the Son. And so what we see here, that the Father has promised, to give to the Son all the nations as his inheritance, and that it will be victorious for the Son. And when the Son has completed his reign, 
What does our text say? The son will go and take the victory, and here's the imagery, will lay it at the father's feet. It says, it is accomplished. Not only was his atoning work accomplished already, but he says, here is the kingdom you gave to me. It is finished. It is victorious. And we go into the new heavens and the new earth. Now, this, this prophecy concerning the Father, the Father putting all things in subjection to the Son, where was that first mentioned to us? Turn with me to, to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand. And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Let's stop right there. That shows you there is rebellion in the kingdom, right? The kings of the earth have gathered together. It's like the UN getting together and saying, We have decided that God isn't there and Jesus is a myth. And we'll have nothing to do with this king. We are the deciders of our own fate. We'll rule according to how we rule. And they're shaking their fists and says against God. Says, We're going to break away the fetters. We have no relationship with you, God, whatsoever. Now, is God shaking in his boots if he ever had boots? No. What is God's attitude? I was like, oh, you are going to defy me? Seriously? What does God say? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He's not intimidated the least. Now, what has the Lord done? But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. The Father is saying, I have installed my king upon Mount Zion. He says, verse 7, I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, Thou art my son. Today I have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as thine inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as thy possession. Let's stop right there. Now, this is an imagery of a father who, uh, in his, what he owns, it passes on to the son, right, as an inheritance. How much does the father own? Everything. And he says, son, what do you want? He says, well, I'll tell you what, son. I'm going to give you all the nations. How many of the nations? All the nations. I'm giving them all the nations to you as your inheritance. They're yours, son. I've installed you on my mountain as my king. And your inheritance is the nations of the earth. Then verse 9 says, Thou, referring to the sun, thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the sun, lest he become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who, who take refuge in him. 
Now the father has laughed at the nations who have raised their puny fists against him. He says, the father says, I have given the, uh, the nations of the earth to my son. I've installed my son on my throne. And all the nations are his. And he will rule them. And the imagery is, here he's going to break them with a rod of iron, showing that there's nothing they can do to stop his reign. And those kings who have defied Jesus, Jesus says, take warning, either pay respect to me or you will perish. Any nation on the face of the earth that does not recognize the dominion of Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords is in great peril. Historically, it has always been in great peril. Where is Rome today but in ruins? The greatest of all the ancient empires is in ruins because they did not, it did not bow its knee to King Jesus. Remember, when the apostles came to Thessalonica and others raised up a turmoil against Paul, and he says, these men who have turned the world upside down, have come here also, saying there is another king besides Caesar. How did they turn the world upside down? By saying there's another king besides Caesar. And, and therefore, they wanted to arouse the Romans against the Christians to say, you're going to tolerate this? You're going to tolerate this rival kingdom? Of course, Rome tried to destroy the church, but it failed, didn't it? Yeah, there were a lot of people that died, martyrs' death, but in the end, who won? Church of Jesus is what has won and will continue to win. Now, if there was any doubts, if you think I'm stretching the text some by saying that this king is Jesus, or that today, thou shall say the son uh Son, today I've begotten thee. If you think I've stretched the interpretation somewhat, turn with me to Hebrews 1 and take a look at verse 1 through 5 and then verse 13. Hebrews 1, beginning in verse 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, In these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he's made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels and has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, and guess what passage he's quoting? Psalm 2. Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. And again, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. And then look at verse 13. To which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. Quoting Psalm 110. 
It's clear that the Son, the only begotten Son, is Jesus. Hebrews makes it very clear it's talking about Jesus. So Psalm 2 was a prophecy about Jesus being given all the nations of the earth as his inheritance. And notice how verse 2 here talks about he was appointed what? Heir of all things. See the similarity? Well, besides Psalm 2 being a clear prophecy of, of Jesus and his reign, turn with me to Daniel 7. Look at verses 13 and 14. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and this kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Now, we've looked at this passage before in the past. This is not the second coming at all. This is the first coming. It says the coming of the Lord of the Son of Man up to the Ancient of Days. This is a reference to the ascension of Christ. When did this happen prophetically? When was Daniel 7 prophetically fulfilled? In Acts chapter 2, when Peter was preaching in the ascension of Jesus. In this ascension, this kingdom, the ancient of days says dominion was given to him. And that all the peoples, all the nations, all the language groups might serve him. Sounds like he has been given the nations as his inheritance, doesn't it? Sounds sort of like the Great Commission, doesn't it? Well, sure it is. So what we see here, after his resurrection, emphatically in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, which is commonly known as the Great Commission. Remember that text says, Jesus comes. He's already been raised from the dead, but he's not yet ascended. He comes to his disciples, and he makes this powerful comment, verse 18. All authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. That word there in the Greek is the word exousia, authority. The right to rule, authority. But you know what? Authority without power to back it up is sort of fruitless, isn't it? Sort of like the monarch of England today, the monarch doesn't virtually have any power anymore. But I'll tell you this, <laughs> it's not true of Jesus. He is the King of kings and, and the Lord of lords. And when he was raised from the dead, remember what Romans 1.5 says, or verse 4, it says, his resurrection, by his resurrection, he was declared to be the Son of God with what? With power. He didn't make him the Son of God. The resurrection simply displayed him as having great power. And he now comes to the disciples saying, I've got all the power in the universe. If I've got all the authority, I've got all the power. Now, if I've got all the authority, if I have the right to rule, 
And by default, I have the power to back up that authority. What does he say? Therefore, therefore, go and disciple the nations. And lo, I am with you always to the end of the world. Remember, we looked at that word, I am with you always. That word it uses is Jehovah Sabaoth. The word meaning the warrior of Israel. The captain of the Lord of hosts. Who has this mighty power? So, what is the what is the what is it implying about the success of the Great Commission? It's guaranteed. It's guaranteed to come to pass because Jesus has all the power. Nobody can stop him. Can you stop the King of Kings? I don't think so. What does our text in 1 Corinthians 15 say? He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Turn with me again to Ephesians 1 to show you how this, this, is, this is a consistent teaching of Scripture. We've looked at this passage numerous times. Ephesians 1, beginning at verse 18 through verse 23. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? What is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ. Now, it's all about the Father. Which the Father brought about in Christ when... When did this happen? When he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but the one to come. Stop right there for a second. What did Daniel 7 say when he that came up to the Ancient of Days was going to be given? A kingdom that could not be destroyed. Dominion. All the nations were given to him. This is exactly what is being taught here. And he put all things in subjection under his feet. The Father put all things in subjection to the Son's feet. And gave him, gave the Son as the head over all things to who? The church. That's going to be the subject next week's message. Which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> when this phrase here in Ephesians says that he, that the Son is far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, is that not exactly, I want you to keep your hand there, but turn over to 1 Corinthians 15. Is that not exactly what verse 24 is saying? Then comes the end when he delivers up the kingdom to the God and Father, when he is abolished. See, the same terms are used. All rule and all authority and power. The end will come only when all the victory has been won. All the enemies are subdued. Then comes the resurrection. Then comes the end. It's a great passage 
portraying the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 6. Look at verses 1 and 2. And I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a loud voice of thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Now there's your work of someone riding on a white horse. A white horse in ancient times was is what a general rode on that was victorious. The image of a white horse is a conquering king. And here you have this one riding on a white horse, has a bow and has a crown, and he's going out conquering to conquer. Who is this who comes from Eden? See why we sing that? He's going out conquering and to conquer. Now, <clears throat> turn with me to Revelation 19. Look at verses 11 through 16. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. Sounds a little bit like going forth conquering to conquer, doesn't it? <clears throat> and his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems. It's a crown, is it? And he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, and that which it may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now the great mistake that some have made is they have thought Revelation 19 was talking about the second coming. Uh-uh. This is not the second coming. This is the first coming. What have we already said? First Corinthians 15 has said, With the resurrection of the dead, then comes the end. When he has abolished all rule and authority, for he must reign until he makes all his enemies his footstool. At the second coming, there is not waging war anymore. See, verse 11, it says, this one who's sitting on this white horse is waging war. Second coming is not a waging of war. It's the, it's the manifestation of the great king who has won the victory and will give this victorious kingdom to the Father. It's obvious talking about the Lord Jesus, because who else has that name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords? But what, and, and what is coming out of his mouth here but a sword by which he smites the nations with this sword? And he will rule them with a rod of iron. Now, where else did we see the Son ruling with a rod of iron? Was it not Psalm 2? Was it not Psalm 2? When the Father says, I've given the nations to him 
as his inheritance, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. You see, the millennial reign of Jesus Christ is a time of great spiritual war. He's coming to wage war, and those following him on white horses are his army. And as we're going to see next week, it's going to be through that army that he wages war and wins the day. And so what we see here, this sword coming out of his mouth, he he smites the nations with this sword. Now there's two passages I want us to take a look at to to understand this imagery. First, turn with me to Ephesians 6. Keep in mind, with this sword coming out of his mouth, now I hope you understand this is figurative imagery. And in those who want to try to make this some hyper-literal statement, uh, can you imagine somebody with a sword protruding out? This is not a carnival. But he doesn't have, it's, it's an imagery, it's an imagery to convey a thought. So we want to know, what is this sword Coming out of his mouth. Well, look at Ephesians 6. And look at verse 17. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Word of God is said metaphorically to be. A sword. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. Now, so here we have Jesus coming on a white horse, going forth, conquering to conquer. And by this sword, he smites the nations. Meaning, this is how he's gaining the victory, right? That's how he's gaining the victory. With this sword coming out of his mouth. I want you to turn now with me to Psalm 110. We're going to go to Isaiah 11 in a moment, but look at Psalm 110, verses 1 through 3. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make thy enemies a footstool for thy feet. The Lord will stretch forth thy strong scepter from Zion, saying, stop right there. Where did Psalm 2 said that the Father installed his holy king? On Mount Zion, did he not? On Mount Zion. And what do we say when a king sits on the throne, he's given what? A scepter. The symbol of his authority and power. Now, with this scepter, what is the, the Son, the Lord, doing with this scepter? Look at verse 3. Thy people will volunteer freely in the day of thy power. Who's the thy people? The elect of God. Now, who did Jesus say in John 6 was given to him by the Father? But his sheep, right? His people will volunteer freely in the day of thy power. You see, as a good Calvinist, I'm one that believes that God is sovereign, but guess what? As a good Calvinist, I believe that people decide to follow Jesus. 
they do decide to follow Jesus. But what will make them decide to follow Jesus? In the day of thy power, they will follow Jesus. Look, when, when, the, when Jesus comes upon you, and when he preaches to your heart through an earthly preacher, and you're like Paul, that Saul of Tarsus. What happened to Saul of Tarsus, the great enemy of the church? When Jesus came to him with great power and changed his heart, what did, what did Saul of Tarsus do? He got up and followed Jesus and became the great apostle to the Gentiles. He chose to follow Jesus. Did anyone force him against his will? Nobody. He chose freely. Everybody who's ever come to Jesus has chosen freely. They've made a choice, a conscious choice to follow Jesus. And they have volunteered freely to follow Jesus. But the glory is, the reality is, God, the Lord God, Jesus, King of Kings, has come upon you with his strong scepter and changed your heart of stone into the heart of flesh. And you live, and you have been raised up from the dead and seated in the heavenly places with the, with the Son. Look at Isaiah 11. It's the last text we'll look at. <clears throat> Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 10. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Stop right there. If you don't already know, it's going to talk about Jesus, because Jesus in Revelation refers to himself what? As the root of Jesse. That branch. So this is a messianic prophecy. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will judge by what uh, he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he will judge the poor. And decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. Stop right there. In in Revelation 19, what did this one have written on him that came riding on a white horse? Righteousness. Righteousness. And it says, he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. Does that sound remotely like a sword coming out of your mouth? I hope you see the similarity. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. It's not bad breath. The imagery is this rod of his mouth, he slays the wicked with the breath of his lips. With the breath of his lips the wicked are slain. When preachers preach, are they not speaking with their lips? And when people volunteer freely to adhere to the gospel, have they not been slain? Have they not been brought captive to the obedience of Christ? As 2 Corinthians 10 says, of course they have. But look, verse 5 says, And also righteousness will be the belt about his loins. 
and faithfulness the belt about his waist. Same terms that Revelation 19 used. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them, and also the cow and the bear will graze, the young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Then it will come about in that day that the nations will result will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. You know, that all that imagery of the animals, I mean, animals that would normally prey on others, what does that convey? Peace, right? Peace. Peace on earth. What is Jesus called? He was called a king of peace. When Jesus defeats his enemies, what's happened? There's peace, right? Peace has come to earth. When he defeats his enemies. Every time that a person is converted to Jesus, peace has come to that person and to the nations. And it says this peace is going to be so pervasive through this, these words that come from the, the lips of the Messiah. That it will be so pervasive that the earth will be full of the knowledge of the of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It will be total victory. Brethren, the victory is not going to come to the Republican Party, not to the Democratic Party, not to the Libertarian Party, not to any party of men. The victory will come through the preaching of the gospel. And until this nation, in all the nations, bow their knee to King Jesus and do homage to Him. There will not be peace. But guess what? Though I may get discouraged by what I see out there, I know the promises of the Word of God. I know what the prophecies have said. Jesus has come. Jesus preaches to His preachers. His promises are true. I will be with you to the end of the world. Philip, when you go to all these lands that you go to, it's not in vain. It's not in vain. The seeds are sown. When people come to Christ, the victory is being won. We may not see the whole victory in our time, but so what? We've got to play our part. But we've got to have confidence in that day. Like I said, when William Carey went to India, he carried that book, that little book by Jonathan Edwards on the humble attempt where Edwards says that we're going to agree with the brethren in Scotland to pray for the, the, the kingdom of Christ to come on earth. That was what that little booklet was all about. And he says we've got to pray for that day. We've got to pray for that day. And of all the limited things that Kerry took to India, he had that booklet by Edwards. In eight long years, he didn't see a convert. But a convert came. And then the Lord used Kerry to translate all these Indian dialects 
into the gospel, into the word of God, and you reach people. It takes time. It takes time. But it will be accomplished. It will be victorious. So, let's end with what our text says. 1 Corinthians 15, 23. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, after those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers up the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. For he must reign until he has put his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that will be abolished is death. And when he has put all his enemies in subjection under his feet, but when he says all things are put in subjection, it's evident he accepted the one who put all things in subjection to him. And when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, that God may be all in all. That is the promise of Scriptures. That is where we put our great trust in a sovereign God. And next week, we'll see how Jesus carries out that successful millennial reign through his church. Let us pray.